and welcome to Hunter Gatherers, the podcast of Hunter S. Thompson Stories. I'm your host, Curtis Robinson, and this episode, as a programming note, starts us on our countdown to the Democratic and Republican conventions uh, to be held at the last of August. And today's guest is uh, is a writer and author of, I'm going to say, nine books, but it might be ten. One of which, my personal favorite, Jaguars Rip My Flesh, uh, was selected by National Geographic as one of the 100 best adventure travel books ever written. And I can certainly second that. So, uh, Tim Cahill, welcome to Hunter Gathers. Thanks, Curtis. Good to be here. And um, I'd like to start out by gathering uh, a, a bit of information that has to do with the 1972 election when uh, Big Ed Muskie, the man from Maine, was the presumptive nominee. And it didn't turn out that way, of course, uh, mostly because of uh, Nixon's dirty tricks, but also. Um, he was uh, he was not one of Hunter's favorites, and I would point out because I think people always forget this that Rolling Stone in 1970-71 was a fairly new publication, still in San Francisco, but it got lucky because the 26th Amendment was passed, allowing 18-year-olds to vote, which brought oh 10 million new voters to the rolls. And how do you reach those guys? Well, Rolling Stone was hit as a way, so it became. Um, uh, it, it punched ahead uh, above its weight, I guess, is a way to put it in those days. And uh, Tim, that was was that, was that your first national publication? What had you done before that? And um, um, you're probably best known for being a founding editor of Outside in the, in the magazine world. But you started, is it correct to say you started at Rolling Stone? Uh, it wasn't. I was a freelance writer before that, but uh, yeah, my first real job was, uh, editorial job, was at Rolling Stone. Um, I freelanced for them in 69 and uh, was hired in 70, 71, I think. Yeah, and, and that's when that's when Hunter started, of course, with, with Rolling Stone. And, and was he in the office? I mean, it's hard to imagine going to the water cooler and running into Hunter Thompson in you know, 1970. <laughs> yeah, no, he came into the office uh, quite often. Um, he would disappear into uh, the corner office where editor-publisher Jan Wenner was. and Lord knows what they did in there, but um, they came out um, happy and quite energized. <laughs> refreshed. Would you say they were refreshed when they came out? Yeah, they were refreshed. Yes. <laughs> so you you had a job, if I'm remembering this correctly, that was not offered at my high school job fair. You you were the drug tester. Well, sort of the drug tester. Um, uh, as a as a new hire, um, I got to uh, send the drugs down to a. Uh, send street drugs that people had bought on the street, sent to us, and we would send them down to a drug testing company called FarmChem in uh, in Palo Alto. And FarmChem would uh, report back to us, well, this 
brown LSD that's being sold is uh, uh, this is is all uh, uh, you know uh, speed and uh, this particular drug is that's uh, uh, supposed to be cocaine is mm, about sixty percent. Uh, uh, baby powder, and, and and anyway, that's then we published the results so that people could uh, uh, buy street drugs that weren't entirely dangerous. But in, in one uh, one report I got back from them, uh, Hunter was in the office at the time. Um, they found a drug that was being sold that was called ibogaine. Um, and ibogaine is a very strange drug. It was a drug, as I recall, that African uh, hunters might take, um, that is indigenous people. Um, and uh, you would take this uh, ibogaine and uh, uh, presumably they got it from natural sources somehow. And you would take this and you were able to stand immobile for 24 hours, which is a good thing if you're hunting prey and want to uh, uh, blend in with the landscape. Um, but it was being sold on the street and uh, nobody in the Rolling Stone offices had ever heard of it. And believe me, these, those were people that knew a lot about drugs, uh, but nobody had ever heard of Ibogaine. And we were talking about Ibogaine. Uh, and we will now circle back to Ed Muskie. Yes, yes. Hunter thought that Muskie was uh, where he said someone like Hubert Humphrey campaigned like a rat in heat. Muskie was not moving enough for Hunter. He was too slow. He was uh, too thoughtful. He was allowing himself to be um, uh, berated and seemed to be standing still as if on Ibogaine. So that's how the uh, uh, the revelation in Hunter's story that saddened and shocked America that he was taking Ibogaine. Uh, because the, okay, he referred to him as an, as an addict on this stuff and then the press picked it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, in a way, in a way, it was one of the original pranks, or I guess fake news, but it was one of the original media pranks. And you know, and, and he, you know, I remember talking to him about it. And he said it was a little bit scary that everyone just thought, well, of course, uh, this leading candidate for president of the United States is strung out on a, you know, an African hunting drug, um, and they just ran with it. I, I was unaware that people took it seriously. Um, I, uh, Hunter, Hunter's uh, stories were often full of hyperbole, and so I just assumed that people realized that. Uh, so so it, it kind of uh, shocks me when you tell me that, yeah, people were buying it. Well, yeah, and, and, and it should be noted that Hunter wasn't exactly nonpartisan in this. He was a. Uh, he he was a George McGovern fan, and he referred to you know Muskie as a two hundred pound water rat, uh, <laughs> among, among other things. So it's uh, 
that's interesting. So that, that's where that's the origin of where he first heard about about the drug that later became such a huge deal. And, a lot and of people, you know, as, a matter, as a matter of fact, I believe we were talking about it in the office, laughing about it. Hunter was around, and uh, um, Hunter would often uh, stay in the office. Uh, in those days, he'd be in the office, uh, um, you know, all night long working, and the next morning. That was the other game story. <laughs> yes, there it is. So let me ask you this. I'm, I'm trying to think. I mean, you, you've had uh, so many adventures. I'm trying to, to if, let's, just, let's just think. If you were in, say, uh, your local bar, your bar is probably uh, the Owl uh, there in Livingston. And uh, let's say it's a third beer kind of story. And, and you're going to, do you, do you have a go-to Hunter Thompson story? Oh, I've, I've, I've got several, but uh, I'll tell one. Uh, Hunter was, uh, after, after some time with the magazine, um, it was, uh, he didn't work in the office all night long uh, anymore. He stayed out at the Seal Rock Inn in San Francisco, way out on Geary Boulevard, where you can hear the seals barking uh, uh, down by the uh, cliffs. And, uh, and uh, <clears throat> occasionally, uh, groups of us would be sent off to take Hunter to dinner to be sure that he had dinner and to remind him that he was working on a story. And... I got to the Seal Rock in one day on just such an errand, and uh, Hunter was working on a. He was wondering if the drug cocaine was at all um, uh, water soluble, because his idea was to dump some cocaine into a uh, into a nasal spray, a bottle of nasal spray and uh, put some water in there and he could use the nasal spray wherever he wanted and nobody would know that he was using cocaine. And he was doing that uh, when we dragged him off to dinner. I recall it was a Mexican place, but a very, very uh, upscale Mexican place, linen tablecloths and uh, uh, fine Mexican food. And uh, Hunter sat there and... uh, uh, ask the uh, ask the waiter if he could have a mirror of some sort. Uh, the waiter brought them brought the mirror, and uh, Hunter brought out some cocaine and began chopping it and continuing in his experiment with the nasal spray bottle, which I thought defeated the entire purpose of doing the nasal spray in the first place, because he was doing it out in public. In the middle of the restaurant. You know, he would, you know, that that's where he got his, uh, his tipping sequence was always, he always, would always say, Curtis, they, they begin at 50% if the cops don't show up. <laughs> well, how, how did you, how, how did you, re- I know how I responded from time to time when I would, uh, uh, you know, the, the white deaths would be evident. So, so how did how did you respond in the seventies to, I mean, with, with the cocaine being used in the uh, 
the Mexican restaurant? Um, I was a little bit uncomfortable, but it was, by that time I knew Hunter, so it was, oh yeah, par for the course. I'm not, uh, I'm not involved. I'm looking around. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, you could suggest, you could say, Hunter, maybe that's not a good idea. And he would say, oh, good idea. <laughs> that's a passable Hunter invitation, actually. Uh, you know, every, every, everyone has one, and you, it, it, you, it, you sometimes have to coax it out of folks. Do you think, you know, when when you look back on that, I mean, you you were there at Rolling Stone and, and the other thing, uh, was Hunter a co-worker, or, or was he really just out at Seal Rock End? I mean, uh, it's hard to see just like knocking story, you know, like you would do it at normal. I mean, at that point, Rolling Stone was essentially a weekly newspaper right i mean it was still on newsprint yeah it was well every two weeks anyway every yeah. two weeks yeah it was on newsprint it was folded over and it was uh because it was on newsprint and because it was folded over uh we were allowed to run our stories pretty long uh they had a lot a lot of pages to fill up and uh that's why hunter could write the uh the great long stories that he did. And it also gave me a benefit to write uh, longer, more um, uh, in-depth, thoughtful stories. Taught me to be a better reporter because I had to fill up all those pages and they had to be filled up with interesting and uh, uh, also um, uh, uh, verifiable facts. Hunter was known to engage in various hyperbole he could get away with uh, uh, doing that, and uh, but I have to say that our our our, our uh, research and fact checking department were uh, it was brutal. If you if we needed as an upstart uh, publication in those days, uh, often writing about. Uh, alternative versions of uh, what was uh, being reported elsewhere uh, in order to maintain our credibility our facts had to be unassailable and uh, so the fact checking and research departments were very heavy and of course <laughs> it drove them nuts with Hunter because Hunter Hunter would make up things like the Ibogaine, and the research department would have to sit there and figure out, okay, this is obvious hyperbole. Everybody knows that this is not true. This is Hunter just making stuff up. But when he talked about facts, they had to uh, check those facts and, uh, and be sure he was right. And believe it or not, Hunter was a... Uh, conscientious reporter when he actually was putting down facts. Oh, sure. I mean, but there's also the point, and he, he's made it several times, there's some good video on uh, that you can find where he said, well, he actually reported a rumor that then-Senator Muskie was uh, was, thinking, was thinking this drug 
uh, and, and the shady Brazilian doctor was running around. I don't know what that had to do with it, but they, but he said it was, you know, the Brazilian doctor was what got everyone good started. He said a report there was a rumor, and he, he said he knew, you know, damn good and well there was a rumor because he had started the rumor. <laughs> so, yeah. so, you know, if you make your own fact, you know, there you have it. And you know, he and he also said that in his writing after that, he got so much uh, trouble for that. And, um, and he even he even said at the time he said he was going to actually try to get a denial from the campaign, but you know, he was he was uh, essentially blacklisted at that point because of the thing that happened in Miami. I guess it was the the uh, you know where someone got his credentials and actually it grabbed Muskie's legs. During right. during a speech, you know that had to be that had to be a grim day too. So it's like for some, for some reason the Muskie campaign and Hunter were were at loggerheads early and often. You know it it it's not unusual that uh, somebody got a hold of his uh, credentials. I mean, well, it happened to me several times that someone got hold of my credentials or at least claim to be me and got themselves backstage at some rock concert and then um, uh, acted in a very uh, acted badly um, and uh, well how, how could that be I mean did you just leave your credentials like on the hood of your car no 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 just somebody just somebody that said they were me apparently and had something uh, you know, I, credentials. We didn't use credentials. <laughs> if we're yes, yes. If we're going on a, a, if we need to cross police lines or fire lines, or if we need to uh, uh, get into a political convention or a, a, a thing, yes, you needed credentials, and that was just basically a press card. And uh, and I never lost mine, um, but it wasn't easy to. I mean it. Who knows what a Rolling Stone press release looks like? You can make one up. Uh, oh, right sure, down. sure. I could probably make a fake one. Well, you know, and, and you have to remember it was a different era. One of the things that I've learned is that that campaign was the last time that that the press credentials did not have photos on them. Because you forget, like, a photo credential wasn't that big a deal. I mean, my first press cards were laminated but that you know you knew they were authentic because they had laminate on it which you know you can get down at the grocery store but but that's how you knew they were official right that's right that's right so as as you moved on into into your writing career and hunter moved into his you know did did you guys overlap a lot um we did to uh, some degree i've been looking around for this uh a little note that he wrote me. Um, uh, apparently, when one of my outdoor books was uh, going to be published, uh, he uh, he wrote me a brief note uh, that uh, I could use as a blurb for uh, the cover of the book. And I, I never got that letter. Um, as you know, they're going through his estate now and uh, finding all kinds of thing still and it was sent to me about a year ago it was something that Hunter wrote to me and back in probably 1982 or 84 or something like that um, and as I recall it said um, 
uh, Tim Cahill is not the person you want to sit next to on a bar stool. Um, he, uh, uh, where you want to encounter him is in a place without a roof. Um, I've hated him since I met him. <laughs> typically, typically, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's 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 uh, that's high praise, really. Yeah. <laughs> you know, from in, in the hunter world, that's high praise. So, <laughs> you know, when he was um, when you guys were cub reporters together, uh, did did you think that he was going to become what he became, and and did you think you were going to become what you became? Um, no, Hunter was, uh, um, Hunter had kind of, was already making a mark when I was hired at Rolling Stone. I very seldom saw him in the office. Um, uh, when we did, we, you know, we, we talked, we went to Jerry's bar across the street and, uh, uh, and chatted some, but at that point it was very clear that Hunter was uh, going to be a giant of his type. Uh, and uh, me, I was still doing uh, what kind of drugs were being sold on the street. <laughs> yeah, but you're the one, you're the one who knew about the Ibogaine. It's, uh, now, did, you, did, you, did you, if you don't mind my asking, did you ever try it? Did you ever find any Ibogaine? Uh, did you ever try any of it? I had no desire to stand still for 24 hours in those days. Yeah, that doesn't seem like uh, I, I could see every now and then maybe want that maybe that's a good thing. But it's uh, you know Hunter. I don't think Hunter ever took it. Oh no, 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 no. It was just what it, what it was was a report that came back from the from the labs. Mm. Basically said. Somebody is selling this stuff on the street. We never had access to it, nor did anybody I know want to try it. No, 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 because that was that was an age of accelerant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't want to try that. And and I wonder if uh, when you're at the Mexican restaurant, how did the experiment with did did he actually try to use the the, the nasal spray? Um. It, yeah, yeah. Um, as I recall, um, it didn't work. Yeah, because cocaine, co cocaine is soluble, but it's, uh, it's going to dissolve into, into it's going to lose its uh, potency. Apparently, that was the case because Hunter was disappointed in his experimental report. <laughs> but it, that is what that is one of the better uh, uh, dining with Hunter stories there is. So look, um, I appreciate you coming with us today on on this little jaunt and and clearing up some of the uh, at least giving us a little background on the famous Ibogaine. And I'm, I'm sure that you know since I uh, I'm hunkered down in quarantine on the coast of Maine, I still run into people a surprising number of people who who say, well, you know that that, that damn Hunter Thompson is the reason. Muskie didn't get elected. I'm like, well, that and Richard Nixon's dirty tricks and McGovern got the nomination. But yeah, other than that, sure. <laughs> sure. So thanks for thanks for coming on today. And oh. um, we'll uh, shoot you a copy of this. 
when we uh, when we when we get it done. And uh, thanks for sharing a Hunter Thompson dining story. <laughs> You're welcome. It's always a pleasure to talk about my pal Hunter. Okay, thank you, sir. Well, the southern gentleman hit the highway and gave us stories we could share of crooked schemes, shattered dreams of people everywhere. Road of whiskey screams and motel rooms where no one seemed to care. Road of deep, dark, secret places made us feel that we were there.